you should just stop controlling interest rates, let them rise to the level they should go to right now, and then you've got the inflation under control, bango. But they don't believe in doing that, so with them in power. Experts, economists have said themselves uh, that this would uh, be, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act would, um, uh, uh, would. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Pounding the Table, episode 73. And Tony, welcome back, and myself back. I feel like it's been a few weeks off here. We have a great guest today with Robert Cantwell, who joins us for an excellent discussion. The S&P closes at new lows. Tony, you've been an absolute warrior, not only with this turbulent market, but the actual hurricanes down in Florida. As always, everything we say on this episode of Finding the Table is for entertainment purposes only. Always seek financial advice from a registered financial advisor. Before I have you kick things off, though, Tony, we got to talk about StockTwits. We've been on there quite a bit lately. If you guys have not checked out StockTwits, you are missing out. With over 6 million members in the community, it's our favorite place to go every single day to get a false of the markets. They also recently launched a new trading platform on iOS where you can buy your favorite crypto and stocks all commission-free. So if you haven't already, go ahead, download StockTwits on iOS or Android and check out StockTwits.com. Let's talk to you, Tony. What's going on? I feel like you have a lot to say. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all pretty much on the same line of what we were saying, like, you know, the last couple episodes is saying we might get these pops. It's nothing is real until you get actualized like data or something breaks or it gets the market gets so bad that there's going to have to be some artificial force that does something. However, speaking with Robert, which is really interesting, which we're going to dive into in a few minutes here. You know, I love the one main thing that he said that I just want to kind of hammer home really quick before we go into a few things. You're just saying like thunder? You're not going to steal his thunder at all. Just preface well, the lens through which you. I like it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Preface the lens through which you should look at things. And, you know, it's about whether or not the company is good. You have to look under the hood and say like, you know, the best innovation is like in how good the business is, how efficient it is. Right. And so you see these companies that we've been talking about, some of them are holding really well. Some of them are starting to like lose footing. And so you see like the market right now is entering into a new regime of like going lower, even from this range we've been in. You know, we have this really, really strong uh, resistance that happened the other day at 3,500 and 3,500, right? Like everyone was short, right? We flipped around, went back up and had, I think it was the third biggest reversal of all time in the market, which is pretty crazy. And it's no surprise like the next day that the market went a little higher and then crashed again down like 4%. So you're not really getting anything that's a, a reason for the market to continue to hold or go higher. And we're continuing to get QE. You know, we have rate increases coming more, which is now like I think it's the fastest rate increase cycle that we've had so far. And so a lot of that is crazy. But when you look into seeing, you know, that the world is $360 trillion of global debt, right? And the entire world right now, like we're having these geopolitical tensions fighting between all these countries of someone's raising, someone's cutting oil, someone's not cutting oil. We're fighting with semis in China, which is just ridiculous to me at this time. And so there's just so many different things going on right now that none of it's bullish. And it's like, it's funny because it's like the world only ends once. It's like, well, the entire world's involved right now. And <laughs> you know, that China just today, I saw that uh, they sent a memo out for any Chinese citizen to get out of Ukraine. And I saw a few other countries have been. Right. Yeah. Not even like, mention that there's like a, a blooming, uh, like the that. war that started in January is now like blooming up even more. And uh, yeah, all that's going on at the same time. Right. And you see like the Bank of England had to come in and say, well, 
pension funds. I know you guys are all screwed. The banks are screwed. We got to fix this really quick. You have a few days, this, that. And then we're going to like, yeah, we're going to pause easy. We're going to pause tightening for a little while. So it's like you're starting to get other countries who are not as strong as the U.S. And they're and then they're trying to save themselves from just in a complete like economic implosion. You've got the yen down 50 percent. The euro is under the dollar. The entire world is feeling the effects of what the U.S. and other large like players are doing. So that's just like one thing to really hammer home here. We've had three straight quarters of uh, market decline, which is the last time we had that was 2008 and 2009, you know, and then when you really think about, I guess, how the average everyday consumer is living, right? We had 38% of people living paycheck to paycheck last year, and now that's increased to like around 50%. And it's continuing to just be a worsening economy for people. You've got like mortgage applications. That's that real. 50% of people are living. I think it's 46, 45%, but still it's, I'll look like, that it's, gone. I'll, it's a large increase. And so when you think about that, like I know uh, we're going to talk about credit card companies and what impact that has when Robert starts here. <laughs> June 2022, 61% of Americans were living paycheck. Wow. That, so that number went up. Even <laughs> yeah. That's scary. Wow. Right. Right. And so you think about that, it's like, is there already demand destroyed? Is that just going to cause like massive unemployment, right? Because like if you're living paycheck to paycheck, that also includes like business owners, right? Like you're not going to be able to employ as many people. All those different things just factor into this economy, right? And at the same time, you have like the incredible strength in the dollar versus other currencies, which is just making everything works, right? Because, you know, commodities are priced in dollars. Everyone in the world uses commodities. There's the whole OPEC, Russia, everyone, you know, kind of meddling in with the price of oil. The U.S. reserves are down abysmally because Biden could not have timed that worse. So you have all these different factors going in and there's just like no reason to be bullish, except for the fact that there's so many negative things happening that at some point, like bad news is not just going to bad news will become good news. But that's just I don't think that we're there yet. I think we, we've seen the VIX kind of hovering 34, 33, like you need the VIX. You know, statistically, you would want the VIX over 40 before a bear market bottom comes in. And mm -hmm. I mean, to 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 be to be frank, the markets will bottom before the economy does. It's just like, I don't think we're all the way down along that line. Yeah. So, you know, CPI came in the other day, not great. And the, the Fed's continuing to want to raise. And so you're continuing to get these tightening measures in an already breaking economy. You've got the UN fighting and begging the Fed to chill because the entire world is uh, feeling those effects, including the US. But what's really just kind of shocking to me is the, the like, if you look at this chart here, which I, we'll, we'll find a way to post this on Twitter and StockTwits, because I mean, all the big tech stocks were trending the entire week on StockTwits. And that's there's just no surprise to me there, because you know, if you look at like US investment grade performance from 1989 to 2022, 2022 is just like, the outlier graph, like way below and like actually like far negative, right? So that's uh, one thing to note there. And like the standard 60-40 stock bond portfolio now has had, it's like, I think it's worst year ever. I think it's down like over 30, 34, 35%. So there's a lot of different things just hitting the markets on every single way. And you're only going to really see this kind of stop when you get a tightening pause or you see like numbers come in line. But, you know, that the, all the things that the Fed are doing are not really fighting with inflation because you still have these really good job numbers. And so you need mass unemployment in order for this to even start getting a little better. And I know, like, I think Bank of America predicted that we would have 
a severe loss of jobs at the end of this year and like into 2023. And not saying that like, you know, you want people to lose their jobs, but, you know, the fate loves irony. People lose their jobs. The economy gets better. And it's just really, it's just, this is how it is these days. So looking for that, you kind of want housing to come down. You want prices of everything to come down because unemployment is going up. And so those are like the, you know, the two mandates the Fed has to do is with unemployment and inflation and doing everything they can to fight the inflation. And I don't know why they kept raising into April and May, but you're not going to get a meaningful rally for until, until some things either break or get settled. And so like you got the S&P at the 200 week moving average, like breaking under that finally. The NASDAQ mm-hmm. is doing the same thing. So you've got some important levels I want to call out on the S&P. Obviously, that 3,500 level that we hit after the CPI came out, that is a huge level, right? There were so many, so many, so many shorts, so many puts, everything. Like 3,500 was that reverse squeeze, just just gamma zero data expiration squeeze. And then you had people just reversing that and then selling off everything they bought that day. And so if 3,500 breaks, like you're going to go, you're going to hit that 3,393, 3,400 level, which is the high before COVID. And then you've got this super strong level, which... I don't know how many times we've mentioned this level on the pod, but it's one of my favorite, 32, 32. That is a really, really strong. What do you mean that's your favorite level? <laughs> what does that mean? I think we've talked about that like five or six times, like since the pod started and that has been a the main, yeah. it's, a, it's a huge shelf and it's a huge pivot. So those are things to really like look for. I mean, you've got another interesting thing here going on of like the, the, the glut of inventory right now. I mean, like inventory mm-hmm. is an absolute like explosion mode right now. And so I don't think sentiment too. I'm always on the indicator, right? I'm even getting to a point where it's like, wow, I've been bearish for a while, but now you talk to anyone and everyone, you kind of don't see anything coming up. Maybe, and I won't get in the midterms, but like maybe that, right? Like that could change some sentiment if Republicans take over the Senate, right? But like, I, oh, yeah. I don't really know what else is in front of us here. I guess if the war were to end, but it seems like it's, peaking now right this stuff with china it, it, it seems a little more aggressive than it's been this whole year like it kind of seems way more yeah. serious and like did you see china said that they're like oh we finally have 100 percent control of hong kong and it's like it's like now it's taiwan's turn and so like wh- where are we going with all those things you know you got rents in the u.s increasing at the slowest pace in more than a year because the budgets that people have just stretch to new limits so it's like you're kind of getting to this place where people they, they, they can't afford the things that they used to. They definitely can't afford new things. And like that slowly ends up becoming demand destruction. Regardless, though, there are other people who are like, you know, obviously faring much better in terms of like what jobs they have, this and that. And like, it's not, they're not as much into those numbers. So there are people who are definitely, you know, doing okay in terms of like, you know, they can still live in their rents. They can still, you know, go out and buy everything. But the average everyday consumer, which is like the majority, right? Because that's the average. It's, it's, it's just not, not, well, it's not, not a... Enough. If, if, if rents are still relatively high and, and I've heard, you know, from numerous companies in tech, put in layoffs, it's, it's no secret. Like you see them in the news every day, right? So it's, that's only going to continue, right? My old co-founder, James Gross, but it was just taking a look, especially in the tech sector for sales folks specifically, as they fire people, they still have to hit the same numbers effectively right. for the PCs. And so now every individual seller has to hit like three X their number. Everyone's stressed out and then people are going to start leaving. So it's a, yeah, 
not not a uh, not ideal, but you know, Robert actually had somewhat of a more optimistic outlook. And everyone's got sick of macro, but it was really interesting to kind of take a look at how he looks at companies, which you were talking about earlier. Just really digging into the operations because he had come from actually being an operator. We are here joined with Robert Cantwell from Upholdings Investment. They are best known for their Compound King strategy. The ETF ticker symbol is KNGS. Robert comes to us with a background in finance. Really cool story too. I know you were deeply involved with Everlane, which is a retail clothing line. So you have some background on the operation side of things. What got you into creating an ETF and how does one do that? Uh, so if you can share just a little bit of background yourself and how you kind of came to present day with KNGS. For sure. My career started out pretty, pretty normal investment analyst at, at a private equity firm in New York. And it was a, a great experience in getting built and leveraged buyout models and, and having to work with management teams to, uh, to make large scale investments. But it's not that exciting because you're not running a company. Uh, you're just, you know, working on the capital structure side of things. And this was, uh, this would have been early 2010. A good friend of mine, Michael Praisman, moved out to San Francisco shortly after Warby Parker and Bonobos and these other direct consumer brands were founded. And uh, that, was the, that was the beginning of Everlane. And the, the simple idea was you could build audiences and engage across social and email without ever having a physical store. And the challenge with Everlane was always, how, how do we build this store in an online-only way? So a lot of internet metrics, a lot of scale with, across social and email, uh, and a lot of product strategy of what you're going to release and how you're going to price it. And one of the great equalizers uh, of the web is you could actually deliver a higher quality product at a lower end price point to the customer through an online website than you could through a physical store. So it was this kind of embedded advantage in the business. Um, so we built that business business up to millions of customers over, over a number of years. Uh, I stepped away in 2018, ironically, around the time that the brand started expanding into physical stores. And as, as I was making my return into investment management, I was managing a small hedge fund, a friends and family fund. And this thing in 2019 happened, which was the SEC made an update to the ETF rule. And ETF legislation is about 25 years old. It's mostly been, the vehicles mostly been used by index funds. But in 2019, they clarified that even active managers could run their strategy inside an ETF and take advantage of the tax efficiency that an ETF offers. Because when you're inside an ETF, if you have a stock that's a winner and you think it's overpriced, you can sell it and you can buy another stock without triggering a capital gains moment for your ultimate investor. So this was a very critical change in the, in the rules around ETF usage. And it has been no particularly big surprise that in the last three years since, there has been a wave of <laughs> what a thousand new active ETFs that have, that have come out of the market. A lot of them are not truly active. Um, ours, we actually converted our funds. So we got to bring our track record with us when we went public. And to, to answer the last part of your question of how do you actually launch an ETF? Uh, the easiest way is to, there's probably about four or five really high quality uh, we're called white label issuers. And these are firms out there that have about a dozen or so ETFs in the market, and they will rent space on their platform within their mm. list. And you, you rely on that. So they help us with compliance. They help us with capital markets so that we just get to focus on the, the marketing of our fund and the trading of our individual stocks. And they help us manage all the 
public market side of things of dealing with the exchanges and whatnot. So that's the the brief story from... So before we get into the macro, which obviously has been dominating the news across Bintwid, throughout CNBC, everything you take a look at, right? But prior to that, looking back in 2020, folks like Kathy Wood, you know, dominated and were the front of Forbes, et cetera. And so a lot of what KNGS is looking at what is coming in the future, some of these innovative Recently, Kathy hasn't had as much positivity around her. And, and so how do you deflect some of that notion of, of you guys are just, you know, arc part two, or how do you differentiate yourselves from what Kathy is creating right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. One of the things that I think people underestimate is a lot of Kathy's success and awareness is owed to her actually being an early mover in this category. So as I mentioned, ETFs didn't have active management. And even the early ARC funds, they, these were classified as thematic funds that technically were tracking some index and then they were updating that index quarterly. So again, it wasn't until 2019 that even ARC had the foresight to strategize its funds around this notion of them being active individual security pickers. So I give, I give her and her team a lot of credit for being early movers in this space. Um, con- uh, on the other side of it, I, I fault the really large mutual fund giants like Capital Group and T. Rowe Price for being so slow to replatform their strategies into ETFs. Because frankly, we hear from Kathy too much. And we should be hearing from all of these PMs that are managing trillions of dollars across all these retail mutual funds, but they're just stuck inside these sleepy old mutual funds and they haven't figured out how to... They're, they're so uh, wrapped up with managing investors' capital from 10 years ago, they're no longer fighting for new investor capital. And that's part of why you've heard so much more from Kathy and so much less from some of these other organizations that actually look at investing a lot of the same things. Now, to answer the, the second part of the question, so Kathy is very focused on um, tangible uh, hardware technology. And so if you look back in her history, there have been things like 3D printing, uh, genome sequencing, uh, obviously electric vehicles. So, Yes, we, we certainly invest in and around technology, but the, the area of innovation that's always been the most fascinating to me is with business models themselves. So Facebook's self-serve ad platform, uh, Datadog's consumption-based SaaS offering. Like it is business models that tend to be underestimated by investors over how long of a period of time they can sustain really high growth rates is the area where I personally have had the most success, uh, you know, investing in my own in my own career. And so, within you know, Kings with what we're doing, um, business model innovation is the thing that we care more about than, say, uh, incremental development on the uh, hardware technology side. That's a really interesting way to put it. You would think that that's like a super obvious thing in people's minds, right? That the best businesses that have the most efficient, you know, best bottom line, best top line all around, those will be the ones that outperform. So it's an interesting thing. I'm definitely going to uh, probably tweet that. If that's okay. Um, go ahead. Cool. So just going into that, I mean, I know we've, we could talk about really anything right now. This year has been very, we're going to write about this in history books. And even today, Bank of England was, there was a lot of things to cover there. But just looking at the current macro environment now, right? Like the 10 year is almost approaching 4%. We've got, you know, QT going on at the same time as interest rates. You know, how do you kind of use that or, acknowledge that what's going on in the world right now and, and what can happen because you know you see that one g7 country is kind of flailing right now what else is going to possibly come up um just wanted to know like your thoughts on that in general and, and maybe where you see the fed kind of going a lot of people are calling for a fed pivot i don't necessarily think that that's even 
in the conversation right now because it just seems like they want to create demand destruction and you know kind of the soft landing didn't work so i guess we're going to land it as hard as possible <laughs> yeah it was you know it was interesting before we we got on together and we were talking we were sharing with you about how you know today is is actually a great moment in time to be an investor but it's not a very good moment in time to be in the investment management business and that's because stock prices are extremely unpredictable. And one of the biggest things that has changed in the market in the past couple of months has been that the Fed has been moving short-term rates now for 10 or 15 years. And if you go back five or six years ago, there were a lot of articles about how the Fed was struggling to actually affect long-term rates. And you know, when the Fed was starting its last raising cycle back in 2018, the 10-year and the five-year treasury rates were barely budging. And the Fed was concerned and they're like, we don't have, our tools aren't going to work as well if investors don't believe that when we're making changes, those changes may last for a much longer period of time. That is the one thing that has been the most different about this current environment that we're in is that for most of the movements they've been making in short-term rates, the five-year and the 10-year have basically been moving with it. And that has whipsawed equity multiples. Because if you can lock in 4% for 10 years, that radically changes the multiple you're willing to pay for Microsoft's earnings. So in spite of the fact that this has otherwise been a, a decent year for companies' fundamentals, Microsoft is growing, Meta is likely to still report growing ad dollars this year over last year when the whole year uh, is complete, uh, in spite of the fundamentals still moving up and to the right, uh, it's the multiples that have cratered. And it has exaggerated the narrative over the quality of a lot of businesses. You know, there's something we, you know, you run into a lot, which is how is the market price of the security driving the narrative around the excitement for the, for the asset? And I would say we were definitely at a moment in time where this rapid um, uh, decrease in the multiples for, for a variety of these different companies has raised the pessimism over the sustainability of a lot of these business models. But, you know, we don't believe social media is going anywhere. Uh, that, and, uh, let me connect briefly because you bring this back to, to Bank of England and what's, what's happening there, um, which is there's clearly an immense amount of public pressure over the pace at which central banks have been uh, trying to shore up their currencies. And it tells you a little bit something uh, about the, the, the different stages of election cycles or levels of political power that might be at play within different countries. And so in England, Obviously, you had the, the queen recently passing away and you've got, you know, are your new king up and coming and new king wants to start off on a good foot and doesn't want to piss everybody off. You know, meanwhile, in the U.S., you've got, you know, the Democrats that have been reasonably in control. Sure, they want to hold on to it. Biden is a, is a reasonably confident older president. So he's not as and he's got the job for another couple of years. So he doesn't have to quite be as generous, let's say, <laughs> with responding to the demands that are coming from the public. And, uh, and that's why Biden has, has sort of taken the stance of, you know, the Fed is independent. The Fed's got to do what the Fed does. But it, 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 if Biden was up for election two months from now, you might actually hear a very different tone out of him relative to the type of pressure you put on the central bank. So once you get into who's tightening, who's easing, by how much, how much is the public getting pissed off, how much power does the central bank have, there's a lot of different things that come into play for the most part. As economic growth in the world has slowed, as population growth has slowed, lo the long-term lowering of interest rates has proven to be a source of 
incremental asset growth in the economy. It's a little bit the pillar of some of the modern monetary um, uh, economic stuff that's out there. So we are we remain believers that interest rates are likely to creep lower over five and 10 year periods of time. But within these one to three year periods, it can get really violent. Yeah. And I saw Tony laughing over there when you were talking. Yeah. He says that politics, like the elections don't matter as much. And and I get that the Fed is supposed to be separate, but it, it feels like there's been, uh, you know, ever since Trump, there's been a little, you know, whispers in, in the ear of the Fed. It depends on who's the president, I would say. So. <laughs> Potentially. Midterms are, are coming up, though. Do you, do you see no impacts with midterms as much as like the presidential? I'd say on the on the midterm side, you know, political cycles can be really good for digital advertising companies. And yeah. so even though so we can get into start talking about individual stocks a little bit. Meta and Google are, are two fascinating businesses over the past three years because, they, you know, they, they tell you a little bit about who their advertisers are and you can guess a little bit. But until you get shocks like COVID, shocks like this interest rate movement, shocks like the reopening, you learn a lot more about these companies. And so if you went back in 2020, um, Meta did pretty well. Google didn't. And so it was a strange period of time where Meta was starting to gain a ton of market share on, on Google. And then you get into 2021, you start seeing the reopenings, and then the relationship reversed again. And now all of a sudden, Google's taking share and Meta's losing share. And the thing that we learned, you know, throughout all that was the relative exposure that Google has to the services economy built around travel, around, you know, one-on-one human services versus Meta's exposure to brands and goods. So when people are buying physical things, you know, that's great for Meta and those brands are, are trying to, you know, create more customers in the, in the different social environments. But if you're, you know, trying to sell a place on Airbnb, you know, Google's assets are a much more natural, natural place for you to be promoting that. And so part of the the challenge at this exact moment in time has been, there's been this transition from goods into services spending. And now we're in no man's land where no one knows what's going to happen anymore. Uh, the reopenings are behind us. The stimulus is behind us. Interest rates just keep going up. And everyone is afraid that just demand for everything is going to fall off. Mm-hmm. You know, so far, we've been hearing from the credit card majors, Visa and MasterCard, that consumer spending has been hanging in there, which tells you a bit about the, the goods side has been, has been hanging in there. Uh, but we really don't have a good read on services right now heading into the fourth quarter. And how much of that uh, for the credit card are people dealing with this recession, dealing with the inflation? Are people just using their credit card perhaps mm-hmm. more and don't have the cash to pay for things? And are we going to see that in a couple of quarters from now where people are going to be defaulting on their credit card? Is it- so it's a great question. The, well, you know, one of the nice thing about owning a, the, the payment networks like Visa or MasterCard is that their revenue grows with inflation. As, uh, as you're pointing out. And not only that, but they don't take the counterparty risk. So it's the bank that issues the credit card that if the consumer is then unwilling to pay their credit card bill, Visa and MasterCard already got paid for the transaction and is not on the line for the, for the dollars liable to the consumer that, yeah. that doesn't happen to pay back their debt. That said, consumer debt is in a reasonably healthy place. And this is coming out of the 2008 financial crisis. They really tightened the screws, at least within the U.S., around subprime lending standards. And so you have not really seen a consumer credit boom since then. And um, frankly, if things continue to be slow, 
Consumer credit may be one of the areas that the the government or the private sector looks to as a source of putting a little more fuel back into the economy. Because since that 2008 uh, financial crisis, the individuals have borrowed the least. Corporations have grown borrowing by an okay amount, and the government has ballooned borrowing. So we're in, a, in an odd place where you know the federal government has you know more debt than we've got GDP, which is not a place that the U.S. has sat for very long in the past. You know that's that, that is a wartime life level of of debt, and I think we are seeing in this in this moment in time how that's being dealt with, which is. The government, you know, kind of wants to fix inflation, but, you know, inflation actually helps the government because it helps, you know, shrink the, their, their relative debt balance over time. So it gets, we're, we're getting into big stuff and you know, we can keep going into it, but it's a, it's yeah. a bit of a rabbit hole. No, I, I, I totally understand. I think about it all the time. It's like, you know, it's, it's like the seesaw that's going on back and forth on the playground and, and, and it's actually, there's no bottom on either. So one can just upend the other. So. I'm I'm very curious to see, especially with the Bank of England coming out today, all that information. The market was, you know, down a lot this morning, came up a good bit. And then as soon as that news hit, you could see just the lack of liquidity in the market, not just the lack of liquidity, like the, the like immense sell pressure that just exists on the market these days. Another thing I wanted to add, just because I read this uh, tweet the other day saying that uh, the number of people who live paycheck to paycheck has like nearly doubled. I do like your point, Avi, of saying like, are people probably just using their credit cards more and 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 using that debt now in a time where they're not making as much. I guess just to piggyback off that, I mean, just just thought of this question here, because it's really important when we come out with like unemployment numbers. Like last week, we had the jobs report that tanked the market, even though you you would not think that that's the report that's, that report was not even far off from consensus, really. But is it more like under the hood, right? The type of jobs that are being, uh, you know, taken for or not taken, you know, the part-time jobs, number of part-time jobs really going up high in comparison to those not like full-time jobs. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it's interesting to see like all the different dynamics that the Fed's trying to manage. And it just, it's just like not really, not really working out. Yeah. I mean, the Fed, you know, you, you mentioned the the funny experience last week of getting a, a positive news around low unemployment and then the market interpreting that as fuel for the Fed to continue to be extremely right. aggressive and, you know, potentially make our future more painful than our present. And that is that is definitely an odd moment. And it tells you that the market has grown to fear the Fed, um, which is which is a very different position than than we've been in in years past. I've I've heard, you know, strong debates across the, the employment question that you're asking. Other people would complain and say, well, we still haven't the labor force participation rate has never fully recovered since COVID, where you just had enough people that said, I'm, I'm either retiring early or I'm done. And now, you know, they're walking that back and they're saying, well, gosh, how do we push up retirement ages? How do we, how do we keep a bigger working force population for longer? To your point on the, um, on the seesaw side of it, I think the, the unemployment rate doesn't tell the whole story because of the, the, the actual participation rate also, you know, pl- plays a role in that. But again, this points to a pretty darn healthy economy. So you're looking at a, a pretty darn healthy economy with growing fundamentals over insanely inflated 2021 numbers. So my view is that any company that is still growing off of their 2021 mm-hmm. revenue numbers or gross profit or cash flow, whichever you want to pick, is technically still a disruptive, penetrating business so long as they're growing at all this year because they were coming off such an insanely high stimulated base. 
This year, they're grinding out wins, which means they're taking market share from competitors, you know, in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that these are the 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 lowest growth rates we're ever going to see. Like this 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 has to be one of these moments of time where you don't know how long it lasts, but you know that you get to accelerate off of the growth rates that you're currently having to stomach, uh, given what we're going uh, through. Absolutely. And yeah, we've covered that a good uh, amount of times in the pod, just saying that whatever companies are still you know, performing well, not just in price, but m- more so on their fundamentals from like that, the whole COVID rally, everything that happened there, those are the names that are uh, probably going to be the strongest once this is all over. You know, we spoke about Mercado Libre a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure if you uh, have that in uh, Kings or if you follow that much at all. But, you know, that that company went many, many folds over during the pandemic and then the rally that followed after. And still, even with the change in DXY, right, like the, the FX changes all over the world and, and Mercado Libre operates primarily in South and Latin America, they still beat earnings per share by, I think, almost 100%. And so something like that is uh, it's very... It's impressive, especially yeah. in this uh, in this economy. Yeah, we've got we've got D local uh, in South America. Mm-hmm. We like their business model a, a little bit more, um, but the story is similar. In D local, we were talking about Datadog a little bit at the beginning of this call. If you look at consensus estimates for any of these companies that are not very old, uh, those consensus estimates forecast those growth rates for those businesses to shrink every year from today as far out as anyone's modeled it, which is mm-hmm. probably 10 years. The probability that Datadog and DLocal um, will have a year or multiple years in which their growth rates accelerate ahead of these perpetually declining growth rates is nearly 100%. And you know, figuring out how to position yourself in a vehicle where you, know, you can be patient enough to get to participate in that upside I think we're in one of those market conditions that um, that creates those circumstances. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about Meta, and I want to get back into the conversation about heading into election year. I know in a previous call we were talking about you know not many people really think about how much money is in that. So I do want to touch on that in, in just a second. But you know, looking at at some of the the Fang stocks, which did so well for so many years, right? Now we reach 2022 and we see Netflix 64% down year to date. Amazon, you know, is even down 34% to date. So I know in your, your letter that you tweeted out to your investors, I saw that you had dropped Amazon, dropped Netflix. And so good job on those, obviously. But in, in terms of kind of where they can go from here, like in some people's mind, Netflix down 64%, that, you know, that feels like a good buy perhaps to some people. But where is the future of Netflix now with Disney? Every single company it now has a streaming service, right? And people are decoupling and finding the best fit, right? Uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on Netflix and then Amazon too. They're in so many different business lines with AWS crushing it. You know, why Why did you kind of get rid of those two uh, moving forward? Sure. Uh, yeah, context, we, we fully exited uh, Netflix, um, you know, over after they kind of bounced in the last quarter. And Amazon has been one that has been trimmed from about seven or eight percent of the fund down to about three to four percent. So the in the Netflix case, um, Netflix is a is a tricky one because they one of the one of the return on invested capital metrics that we we like to track really closely is um, especially for a lot of these growth companies. In any given year, they're they're spending more in operating expenses. They're spending more in capex. 
And what we do is we look at the incremental amount they spend in CapEx and operating expenses, and then look out the next year, next couple of years and say, well, how much did operating cash flow grow in the next one to two years um, off of you know, their increased uh, spending you know, in, the, uh, in the present year? And in general, for uh, top tier SaaS and internet assets, so like Meta, Google, ServiceNow, those companies generally... For every new dollar of headcount spending or CapEx today, they're going to generate another 40 cents of operating cash flow next year. Now, uh, Netflix has, has, has long um, befuddled the market with a, with a very uh, uh, complex uh, cash flow setup because of how their content gets amortized. And so a lot of their cogs are buried in their uh, cash flow statement, which makes it a lot harder to analyze. And if you strip everything in and out of there, one of the very you know, sad things for, for Netflix has been that they have actually been earning a negative return on invested capital um, because the competition for content has been so fierce. And Netflix um, was so loose with the amount of content that it was willing to acquire that they pushed the return on invested capital into negative territory for their business. And so you've now got a company that has no subscriber growth or low subscriber growth. And their, their, their plot for the future, when they say, uh, what we have to do now is we have to make better content without growing our content budget, that is the most impossible thing I have ever been asked as an investor to believe in a company. Um, only because you see the competition for that content across more places than you've ever seen before. So there's nothing structurally different about the market today that leads me to believe that Netflix can spend the same amount of money and somehow generate uh, more engaging or higher tier content they're making today. So that was an example of where the, the, the return, the return on investment isn't there. And, you know, management is not offering a way out that, you know, we as investors think is a, is, is a good risk for investors capital. Uh, Amazon is an interesting one because their market is so big. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the, the challenge, so where Amazon fits into that, you know, if they spend a dollar today, they generate about 10 cents of additional operating cash flow in the next year. So what's, what's been interesting about Amazon is they're a lower return on invested capital business, but their, their, their addressable markets have been so gargantuan that they have surprised investors with how much you know, revenue they can generate. Um, one of the things that, 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 that um, held us up a little bit as we, as we dug in deeper on the, on the return on invested capital metrics in the uh, AWS uh, and, and, and cloud major piece is that while that segment has been driving up Amazon's um, EBIT margins over time. So their gross margins have been going up, their operating margins have been going up. Amazon spends more on CapEx in AWS than they spend, uh, excuse me, than they earn in EBIT income. So technically the free cash flow of AWS, even at today's size is negative. And this to us is one of the uh, potential misunderstood um, uh, features of Amazon's assets where they're like, well, Sure, they were in the retail business before, but now they're in the AWS business. And that's just going to be great because look at what it's doing for margins. But we have not actually seen evidence that for the business at, at, as a whole, that their return on invested capital when you put everything together has actually improved above that 10 cent threshold. And Amazon is still pretty expensive, you know, relative to other assets that we're seeing in the market here. So there's a lot of things that you could argue that you like about Amazon, but relative to the price, relative to the cash flow conversion, um, we thought there were a few better opportunities. And so we, uh, we shrunk the position a little bit.
Real quick on Netflix, because um, I, I was really excited about the, their, you know, venture into gaming. And then I haven't really heard a ton about it, you know, and I haven't really seen a lot of, about that. So I don't know if, if that's even launched yet, where they're at with that. And, and do you see that as a new revenue stream for them, you know, in the next couple of years, perhaps? I, I don't. Um, the... Uh... <laughs> Just straightforward. <laughs> the 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 history of uh, subscription as a gaming service is it doesn't exist. People don't subscribe to gaming content. They subscribe to live access. So if I'm a Halo player, my Halo game is enhanced by the fact that I get to play live players through a live subscription. Mm-hmm. Uh, and building a title like Halo takes a decade. Yeah, Netflix doesn't get to just flip a switch and start putting apps on people's phones and then think all of a sudden it's going to become a top tier. Uh, it's like it's like that. Remember when Apple launched their you know silly little game store not too long ago? Similar problem. So I'm not a believer in the games as a subscription because it's such a hit driven business model that I have a I have a heart it, and they don't have a platform advantage. You know, it's not like right. a PS5 or an Xbox or, or something here. So it. No. Until someone explains to me the competitive advantage that Netflix has of existing in the games business, it's going to be hard for me to believe that they're going to put out something compelling. So I wanted to talk about something that's kind of on my mind always as, as a retail investor. Going back to your, your conversation about you know everything moving from Google to Facebook, Facebook to Google, and kind of back and forth. These funds are the ones with the real money that are kind of really moving the stock. Two-part question here is, is one is like, how much of that goes on where funds are maybe piggybacking off other funds and they jump on that momentum? And then two, you being in the position you're in, you know, how do you hold conviction? This is always a question I talk to but with everyone. And I always just curious, you know, when you see the price of a stock just going down, down, when is that point where you cut bait? Or, or how do you maintain that conviction when everyone else in the market is saying something else? Yeah, uh, excellent questions. The um, first on the piggyback thing, you see some of it. Uh, so I, the the dynamics that I would share from a from a fund following standpoint are uh, one, it's more likely for a fund to piggyback on itself, which is the venture capital model of you invest in the Series B of the company, you want to see the price going up over time, so you invest in the Series C at a higher price. Mm-hmm. even if the company has questionably added value uh, during that period. Um, I would frame the piggybacking in a, in a slightly different way where it's almost like the market has separated itself into index-based funds versus uh, active managers that have selected the securities in the portfolio. And uh, it has both, um, it has both uh, resulted in a little bit less accountability for management teams, um, but it has also created opportunity for investors. So this whole... Twitter uh, saga with Elon hmm. has been interesting to see because almost no active managers own Twitter. After CapEx, the thing hardly generates any money. It's been a very mismanaged asset for a long time. The thing it has going for it is this top five global web property, which means it has very interesting strategic value. And had there been more actively voting active stock managers mm-hmm. near the top of their cap table, that deal might not have happened as swiftly as it did. But because Twitter was predominantly held by a long list of index funds that don't care about what they own, it created an opportunity for him to get to seize an asset that is otherwise very rarely available in the public marketplace. So I'm I'm setting the exact price point aside for a second. 
um, just to kind of drill in on how does some, how does a forty billion dollar company even successfully change hands in a market like that? And the answer is because of this index phenomenon. So I think there's there's definitely some potential alpha to chase out there uh, from hunting down stocks that are almost entirely owned by index funds versus those that are entirely owned by active managers because active managers aren't we're not perfect either. And sometimes the difference between you know the A player and the B player in industry is you know five percent, but you know the index funds may hold it at a, a, at a third of the multiple of the active managers that say, well, we're only going to buy the best, you know, no matter the price. So sometimes you get some odd uh, some odd discrepancies in the market from that. Uh, to the second part of your question, um, certainly the more painful one of uh, you know being in this business, which is what happens when the price of uh, security that you held just keeps falling and falling. And, and the narrative around, you know, how the market's excitement for a stock that you hold seems to be, you know, changing over time. And for this, I, you know, I, when I talk with our team about it, this is us doing our job. So Meta is a, is a perfect example of a, well, I can give an example before that. We had been Alibaba shareholders in the past and Alibaba, you know, stock was getting beaten up last year. And we've got to double down our research every time we do that. And one of the key things that came out with Alibaba, setting, setting aside um, the, uh, the called the geopolitical risks was that the company was moving money into lower and lower return on invested capital acquisitions. They were buying, you know, local grocery stores, and they, they, it is not clear that they were demonstrating any discipline. And that is something that had changed about the about the business relative to say five or seven years ago when we first did work on it. So that was an example of where we followed the market. The market told us, you know, we overpaid for the asset or shouldn't been holding. We did the research and and we got out of it. Meta, as a present day example, is uh, very different from that because Meta, in part because the company has repositioned itself and given itself a ticker uh, and you know, tries to keep selling this Horizon World thing that nobody cares about, um, is, is, a, is a totally different situation because what one of the mistakes that the management team has made here is they're allowing the market to believe that Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp are assets that are either not growing or they have some, some end date attached to their existences. And I would argue that a lot of the multiple that has come out of Meta has come out because um, the, the, the company is no longer talking about its core assets. Mm. And one of the things that, so you have the TikTok narrative that's out there. TikTok is a you know, great service it's, that's winning over users. It's certainly not bigger than Instagram yet. One of the things that we tracked was we looked at, um, you get there's a variety of these like social tracking tools out there. And we would track the top 500 accounts on, on Instagram, on, on TikTok, on, on YouTube. Um, and we would track how was the, the follower growth and engagement happening for your top 500 Instagram influencers versus TikTok versus whoever. And Instagram was still growing attention for their top accounts just a little bit faster than TikTok. They were, they were kind of neck and neck with each other. And... This is one of the great misunderstood things about Meta has always been that it's a, it's this user company. And it's like, no, 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 it's a small business advertiser company. And influencers are rapidly emerging as this like core customer to Meta because Meta is able to deliver them attention. They're able to make money off of it. And Meta does a very good job of finding ways of getting some piece of that business from the influencers. Um, so to us, the, the Instagram and Facebook, that, that entire ecosystem of assets is perfectly healthy. It's, it's heavily being used. Sure, there may be some time shifting over to TikTok, but the, the, the overall pool of dollars in social media is still growing and Meta is still getting the dominant piece of that. 
So this is an example of where, you know, no matter how many times we read about, you know, folks complaining about the metaverse, we know that our cash register keeps working um, on their ads business and other assets. I know I have a few minutes here, so I do want to pull up this tweet from you. So you wrote, more and more young people are using TikTok's powerful algorithm to find information uncannily catered to their taste. That tailoring is coupled with the sense that real people on the app are synthesizing and delivering information rather than a faceless website. Going back to kind of some of the political stuff, right? I know back in the day, there was a huge thing with the Republican side of, you know, taking away TikTok altogether. So I don't know how much of that is real. It doesn't seem like TikTok's going to stop anytime soon here. But is that a potential huge upside for Facebook and some of these other applications if TikTok down the road does get limited or completely taken out of the US? So first piece on the on the functionality side of things, because TikTok was a, a native short form video company, whenever you're native to the new technology platform, you tend to have some advantages. That's why Instagram was native to mobile and it's kicked Facebook's butt for the past 10 years. And so, you know, TikTok being native to short video, TikTok is a few years ahead of anybody else in any short video efforts that they have. I'll give you one little example of that. In TikTok today, there's a, there's a search function. And that search function works beyond just looking for people's accounts. You can, much like someone would type into Pinterest, how do I, how do I decorate my front lawn for Halloween? Uh, TikTok will serve you lots of immersive video content uh, that's much more engaging than, say, just showing you a photo or giving you text that tells you how to do something. So for that kind of Pinterest level of engagement, uh, that is one of the early areas that people are like, oh, shoot, like TikTok is more than just a streaming video company. It's also sort of a search intent business. And how big they can get that remains to be seen. You're talking about competing against Google here, also Pinterest. Like These are large assets. It's going to certainly take some time. The second, but it's something that I, I would describe us as monitoring closely because we're less concerned about TikTok hurting Meta. We're more concerned about TikTok hurting a smaller player like Pinterest because they lack the, the market share to be able to fight mm -hmm. back against a company like that. So now to the other part of your question, which is, you know, can we hang our, can we hang our hopes on regulatory intervention? Mm -hmm. And probably not. Regulatory, the history of regulation with communications companies. So anytime there's, if you look at 18, you know, decades ago, any, any technology that connects, you know, two people or connects one people to many tends to attract a lot of regulation. And, you know, you, you saw that as recently as the, as the, the, the Kanye tweets of this week. And people are like, well, that would be legal under Texas law, but it's going to be illegal under other laws. So it's possible that social media companies are going to have to geofence, you know, what they deliver to based on different states' laws and not so different from how they have, you know, geofences around different countries today in those laws. So we are generally under the assumption that regulation will continue to make the social media business model more complicated. But that's also going to generally just make things harvest for the smallest players. So Snapchat, Twitter, Pinterest are going to have a really hard time spending the capex and, and, and operating expenses to, to support those increasingly complex requirements. And you may, we, we, if you fast forward 15 years from now, I would not be surprised if we were in this ByteDance meta duopoly communications mm -hmm. universe as a result of all this. Mm -hmm. This is very interesting. I feel like we weren't able to, to cram everything here in, in the hour that we had together. So 
Love to bring you back on. But Robert, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Really learned a lot here. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Tony, we'll wrap things up, end things with some really key earnings. But before we get into that for what's happening for the next week, you went through kind of crazy chaos the past few weeks with this hurricane and just check in and see, at least share why we haven't been uh, recording here the past few weeks. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, U.S. got hit pretty hard with this hurricane. That's not surprising. And, and, and hurricanes come through here all the time. But you know, there's a lot of people who get really hurt by these things. Like I've had my house completely destroyed multiple times from hurricanes. Like luckily this one didn't hurt too bad, but it did hurt like a good friend of mine. Unfortunately, one of my friends had pretty much their entire apartment and everything that they owned inside of it, like burned down from, you know, something that happened during a hurricane. So there's going to be a GoFundMe link at, in the description of this podcast. And we'll also send it out in an email. Check it out. You know, I'm always here. One of those people who love to donate and try to help people out in tough times. Um, and I would really appreciate it. I think that, you know, it's hopefully something that not many of you ever have to go through, but losing everything you have and not really being able to fix anything for a long, long time because insurance companies are absolute dog shit. Yeah. It's a tough time. And like, that's what people are supposed to be here for to help everyone. Definitely, Tony. I will donate for sure to your friend. And I think that's totally fine to share uh, one of your friends that's going through. Hopefully, even if it's five, 10 bucks, that is something nice. And I will definitely donate. So. Tony, we got some earnings here coming up next week. And I was like, we got to talk about this. These are some big names, right? So we have Bank of America on Monday, Charles Schwab. Uh, Tuesday, we got Goldman Sachs, Johnson Johnson, Netflix. Wednesday, Tesla, IBM. Thursday, AT&T, Snapchat, American Airlines. Friday, Verizon, American Express, right? So these are some big names. And I was like, we got to talk about them. I mean, I think if you look back to where like the June... Uh, the July, June, July, August area where we had those earnings come in and, and like alter the way the market was moving. You had a lot of like beats in certain companies, like you had a great Disney beat, yeah, Amazon, other companies like that were rallying really well. Um, and obviously those are huge parts of the market. So as much as like, obviously the macro is the dominant force here and it will be until it's just not as terrible as it is. And it is the worst it's been in decades and decades. If you see a lot of these companies, like, you know, we've talked about how Mealy beat 100% EPS, even in this terrible, terrible market, that's impressive. If you see, you know, certain companies like maybe Google, Amazon, Disney, the same kind of similar companies, you have Netflix reporting soon. Those companies are a big part of the market. So those companies doing well, either going up or holding the floor. But, you know, if they miss and they go down even lower, like that is opening the door for that liquidity drop from, you know, 35, 3,600 now down to 30, 32, 32 or 3,400. So definitely something to watch for. Like you want to see how the big players react and move. So very, very curious to see how this earnings cycle goes. I think it will really determine the entire uh, remainder of the year minus like obviously external artificial forces from the Fed or other, you know, world governments and everything. So Keep an eye out on that. I'm really curious to see how some of these other companies that are now lower than they were back in June and July, even though they had good beats then, do this time. So that's pretty much the main focus for me in the coming weeks. It's way more fun to do the podcast when the markets are ripping. That is it for another episode of Power the Table. We will that's be back next move. week. Big stay money, safe. Stay hungry. Stay pounding on the table. Yeah. Never doubt it, say the top is never crowded Well, I'm trying to climb the
amount Until I need a few accountants Stock is rising, perfect timing I'm in brickle with the tribe Shawty sliding, she want sushi, she want